So the Old Testament reading is from 2 Samuel 6, and if you have a church Bible, that's on page 2.30. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty was enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And now we're flicking uh, to Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. And if you have a church Bible, 
that's on page 911. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling, sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At, this, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised... Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Oh, good evening, everyone. Uh, good to be uh, with you all uh, this evening and to have this opportunity to hear, hear God's word. Uh, we Aussies are known to be a pretty irreverent bunch. Uh, we prefer relaxed over, uh, and casual over formal. We prize familiarity over formality. We avoid titles. Uh, we, uh, we prefer to use first names and uh, even when we use first names, uh, we shorten them to nicknames, don't we? Uh, Gaza and Jezza and Shazza. Um, we even do that kind of thing with surnames. So uh, my Jonathan is known by his cricket teammates affectionately as Muzza um, and uh, derived apparently from our surname Maury. It shares the first letter in common with our surname. <laughs> Australians are, are pretty slow to openly show respect for authority figures. We might respect them more if they manage to show that they are one of us, that they are on the same level as us and they feel familiar to us. Um, but it's interesting, that I find, that people in other cultures where their leaders or their royal families are held in high esteem, they can be shocked to see how quickly we criticise uh, our politicians in Australia. Now, I do have to say that in some ways... I don't mind the relaxed Aussie irreverence. But, but what about when it comes to God? How should you relate to God? Um, relaxed and casual uh, or reverent, uh, familiar or fearful? Uh, is God your mate or is he your master? And that's the kind of question that we're faced with as we come to the Bible passage this evening from 2 Samuel chapter 6. And before we do that, I just want to acknowledge that uh, Lionel Windsor's sermon on this passage has helped me so much. Firstly, we need a little bit of background. We've moved ahead from some chapters in the story in 1 and 2 Samuel, 
In 1 Samuel chapter 16 to 31, we see the fall uh, of Saul, who was the people's choice for king, and we see the rise of David, God's choice for the king. And then in 2 Samuel chapters 1 to 5, David is proclaimed king by the people. And in chapter 5, just before today's passage, David captures uh, the all-important city of Jerusalem. He takes the stronghold of Zion and he calls it the city of David, uh, his own military capital. And now in this passage, in chapter 6, we see David uh, complete his conquest of Jerusalem uh, by bringing into the city the all-important ark uh, of God. So you see there from chapter 6, And verse 1, David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. So what is this ark of God? It's that special box that was built according to the instructions that God gave Moses at Mount Sinai. Um, God is not the box, uh, nor does the box contain God, but it, is, it was nonetheless a special kind of box. And the golden angels, the cherubim mentioned in, in those verses, symbolise God's power, and they are like the footstool of the invisible throne reaching up to heaven. God is transcendent, and he is holy, and he is, and he is powerful. Um, and the ark symbolised that this God chose to be present This God chose to dwell uh, among the people. And so it's no wonder that there is so much celebrating going on in this chapter uh, as the ark comes into Jerusalem. And that's why David realises it's important to bring the ark uh, into the new capital. He is king, but he realises that he needs God to be present with him in his new city. This city which is not only David's city, um, but but God's city. So here is a very significant moment. They bring the ark into Jerusalem. How how do they do it in verse 3? They set the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it from the house of Abinadab. Now, um, a quick history of the travels of the ark is is pretty helpful here. Back in 1 Samuel, in um, chapters 5 to 6, Israel fight the Philistines and they lose and the Philistines capture the ark. And then they think they can kind of use the ark as a bit of a good luck charm to help, help them win their battles, win, win their, vic- their victories. But the Lord God will have none of that. And as the ark moves from one Philistine city to another, there is havoc. Plagues strike the Philistine rulers uh, and the people. And when they carried the ark into Dagon's temple, it led to the statue of Dagon falling flat on his face on the ground um, before the ark of the Lord. And so eventually um, the Philistines have had enough. The Philistine, uh, the priests and the diviners of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 6, they say, now then, um, get a new cart ready with two cows. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and send it on its way. (laughs) You know, they can't handle the ark and they pass it on like a hot potato. And they give it back to Israel. They set it on a new cart. They send it to the people of Beth Shemesh. There's a bit more to the story. There's things that happen in Beth Shemesh that are worth kind of having a read of too. But anyway, it finally ends up at Kiriath-Jerim at Abinadab's house on the hill where it remained for 20 years. And that brings us to 2 Samuel 6. 
Because now that David has properly defeated the Philistines in chapter 5 and he's settled on a new capital, he wants to bring the ark into its new home. But I want you to notice something about how David brings the ark back uh, in verse 3. David and all his men set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. What's he doing with the ark? He's using pretty much the same kind of transport the Philistines used. He got a new cart, like the Philistines. He pops the ark on it. He gets the guys who'd been keeping the ark for the last 20 years to guide it. It all sounds pretty reasonable, a reasonable mechanism of transport, doesn't it? Except if you knew what God had actually commanded about how the ark was to be moved. And if you look at the actual transport regulations that God laid down for the ark in the law, the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, you'll see that the ark had poles permanently attached because it was to be carried. And it was to be carried only by the Levites. It had to be carried in a special holy way by special holy people. And why? The reasons given in Numbers 4.15. When the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites are to come to do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things or they will die. See, the ark is not just a ceremonial box. It's, it's more like dangerous goods. And God chooses to be specially present with this ark. And God is holy and he is perfect and he is wonderful. And sinners cannot come into the presence of this holy God. It is dangerous to do so. And so that helps to explain what happens next. Um, David is bringing the ark into the capital. It's a great celebration. There's music and there's dancing and fun. And then, but then verse 6 says, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out, took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God well that brought an end to the party didn't it um, you can you, you can imagine how suddenly um, that silenced the crowd and brought an end to their celebrating how how does David react well he's angry you know when we don't get what we want <laughs> we get angry and we look around for someone to blame and David David seems to be angry um, with God. He's angry that God took it out on Uzzah and no doubt he thought that, that this should have been a time of blessing for Israel but it kind of looked more like um, God wasn't on the side of Israel at this point. And the name of the place is, is significant. The place is called um, Perez Uzzah. It means breaking out against Uzzah. Um, Back in chapter 5, verse 20, there was another place with a similar name just after David had defeated the Philistine enemies. David said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So the place was called Baal Perez Perazim. So back in chapter 5, God's wrath was breaking out against his enemies. And now God's wrath is breaking out against an Israelite, against Azar. So here's David who seemed to be at the very height of his strength here. A new king, new victories, new city, but David's strength is, is cut down by God. And so, and so in verse 9, when this sinks in, um, David's anger 
turns to fear. He's scared. As he says there in verse 9, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Um, You know, this was meant to be David's great day of celebration. God's king bringing God's ark triumphantly into the city. But it's a disaster and one of God's own people dies as a result of David's failure in his duty as a king. And it fills his heart uh, with fear. Now, you know, I think we need to try and reclaim the word awesome because we need the word awesome, properly understood, um, to understand God. And unfortunately, the whole idea of awe is actually not common in the way that the word has now been used for many, many years. And we can forget that awe ought to characterise our response to God. Now, that that led to... um, that was one of the things that led Paul Tripp to write a book called Awe. And I recommend it if you want to read a good book on this topic. It's a good, good one to pick up and have a read of. You can look it up pretty easily. It's just called Awe. And Paul Tripp is the author. What it, why it matters for everything we think, say and do. There's a subtitle. Well, according to dictionary.com, the common meaning of awesome today is simply impressive. You know, as in the new white convertible was totally awesome. Um, that's the common usage of the word, isn't it? It gets used to describe anything that we're um, impressed with or excited about. And not just spectacular, awe-inspiring landscapes, like, I don't know if you've been to the gorges at Karajini, I'd be the first, one of the first things I'd think of is describing them as awesome. Um, but we, we use it to talk about anything we're impressed with. That's an awesome pair of socks that Nick is wearing um, this evening. Or that's an awesome recipe that someone else in the congregation has cooked, that chocolate cake recipe. It's awesome. I'm impressed. But that's not what the word originally meant. Here's the top Oxford Dictionary definition. Awesome. Extremely impressive or daunting. Inspiring awe. Um, in, In the awesome power of the atomic bomb, for example. That is what God is like. He's not just awesome as in pretty cool. He is awesome as in powerful and holy and dangerous. So Exodus 15 verse 11 says, um, after, this is the song of Moses, after the Exodus. It says, Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. So David had experienced God's uh, amazing protection and special intimacy over the years, but now he's overstepped the mark. He's presumed on the relationship. He's failed to pay attention to the regulations and to obey them, the regulations designed to protect humans from the awesome holiness of the Lord God enthroned between the cherubim. You know, I wonder, do you understand that Our God who loves us is also truly awesome. That these two characteristics of God are compatible. You know, every time that we pray the Lord's Prayer, we acknowledge this, don't we? And it reminds us of that, which is very helpful in in approaching God. The first line expresses the intimacy of our familiarity with God, our Father in heaven. And then in the second line, Uh, we express that God is holy, hallowed be your name. And, you know, we must never let um, our privilege 
as Christians become presumption. Our relationship with God is close, but it is not casual because we worship a holy God. And so um, at the end of this little episode, the ark stays at Obed-Edom's place and David doesn't know what to do with it. It's kind of in the too hard basket for him at the moment, so it stays there uh, for three months. And if you're following the outline um, that was handed out tonight, we're up to that next part of the story in verses 12 to 23, the humbled king. Because David soon realises that he really does need God's blessing and so he decides to bring the ark of God in again, but this time he does it properly. It's reported quite differently to the first time, if you, if you noticed that. Now he does it humbly, with due respect and reverence for the awesome power of God. So last time he was casual with God's holiness, God's name, He didn't pay attention to the regulations, God's explicit instructions about how to worship him. And so he became responsible for the death of Uzzah. But this time, there's no new carts. He follows the regulations of the law carefully. The people carry the ark with the poles as prescribed by the law. And there's an extra measure um, of care. He ensures that there's plenty of priestly things happening as well. So look at it from verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. He wears a linen ephod, the clothing of the priest. He celebrates properly this time. And the Hebrew words here for the shouts and the trumpets suggest that this is a more serious kind of celebration the second time around. And David's attitude here is quite different to the attitude of the standard ancient Near Eastern kings. So they would show their strength and their leadership by fighting and winning battles. Yes, and we know, we know David did that. But they would then set up monuments of their victory and they would then share the plunder of their victory um, with the people. But David here shows his leadership by dancing around in priestly clothing. <laughs> uh, and, then, um, and then he gives a show bag to the people. He's not sharing, and he's not sharing the plunder of the victory over the Philistines. It's more like a take-home pack from the sacrifice. He's including all the people in his humility and in his sacrifice. David is leading the people by sacrifice, not by battle. Here we see, here we see a truly humbled king. But there is another character in this story, isn't there? That is quite a focus in the last part of that chapter. Saul's daughter, David's wife, Michal. And she sees his behaviour, his dancing, and she's not happy at all. So David comes home and Michal gives him an earful as she tells him off in verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him And said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. She's... So what does Michal care about here? Um, Not God. Not God's holiness. Um, No, Michal, like her father, um, fears people. She had once loved David for his power, 
She loved the strong David, the warrior, the one who defeated the enemies, the one who gave her prestige and respect. But this new David, this humble David, she didn't want a bar of it. And I wonder if that, if that kind of hits close to home for you. Do, do, we, do we worry about other people's opinions of us rather than God's opinion of us? Or how much time do we spend keeping up appearances, looking strong in the eyes so that we look strong in the eyes of others? at work or at home or amongst our peers. And we can learn something about anger again here. We touched on it earlier with David. Michal is angry and and despises David. But in her anger, anger is an important thing for us to learn here. It's important when we get angry to reflect on why we we are angry. Anger says something about our desires, that when you get angry... Um, what is it that you want um, that you are not getting? And we, and we often want the wrong things, don't we? But what we are angry about um, shows us what we really care about in life. And here is a woman who gets angry when her husband looks silly in front of everyone. That's what she cares about. That's what she sees. And she wants a husband who is powerful and prestigious. And she worries about what others think, not what God thinks. No thought is given to God's awesome holiness at all. And it's worth us thinking about whether we do similar things, making similar assessments of ourselves and of others as we worry about what others think of us rather than what God thinks about us. Well, from verse 21, David shows what he cares about. David said to Michal, "'It was before the Lord.'" Who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel? I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. Now I could at this point ask the women here, couldn't I, what do you look for in a man? (laughs) Powerful and handsome, um, someone like Saul? Or a man who's, uh, who's willing to humble himself in the sight of God, even to the point of looking ridiculous like David here. Like, you might like to think about that one later. But the important central question here from this text is, what do we look for in God's king? And we're going to see in the next chapter um, next week that King David's greatest claim to fame is that he was the forerunner of the great king Jesus Christ. So the question for us as Christians is, what do you want Jesus to be for you? The powerful one? Um, The one who will give you power and prestige and success in the eyes of others? The same way that Michal was thinking about David? Do we fall for that thinking at times about what Jesus might do for us? Well, contrary um, to what Michal looked for, David here in verse 21 measures his life and his actions before the Lord. That's the repeated phrase. It's God's view of him, how God sees him, that matters to him. And so in verse 22 he says he's willing to become even more undignified and even humiliated. He's happy to be despised uh, for God's sake, for God's honour. He doesn't care what the slave girls think of him uh, as Michal does. Um, but about how God sees him. And he finds joy in humility before God. So what do you think? What do you think about the humble 
king, about the humiliated king even. Uh, We know that Jesus is the king who makes the ultimate sacrifice of giving his life and that means he was humiliated, doesn't it? We know he was mocked, naked, shamed, despised. And yet it was that sacrifice that saves us. And he calls us to join him in living that same way, to have the same attitude, to be humble, to carry our cross daily, to serve, even if others might despise us for it. And, that, and that's how we are to worship God according to the New Testament. It's not by dancing or singing or spinning around like David. It's not by sacrificing animals. It's not by priestly regulations about the ark. They were temporary rules. But our worship is about humbly acknowledging the depths of our sinfulness in the light of God's awesome holiness. Our worship is about throwing ourselves on God's mercy and living lives that put him first in love for others. Is that you? Mikhail uh, had no regard for God's awesome holiness and so she despised David's humility before a holy God. And as a result, it says that she had no children. We can make sense of that in in a number of ways, including that she despised her husband, we're told. Um, But it goes deeper than that in the the narrative of these two books. Um, Michal is Saul's daughter. And the house of of Saul represented human strength and pride. And the house of Saul has been brought down and it has no future. And now his daughter... Um, who had the same attitude, cannot continue um, his line. David, David is God's humbled king. He's learnt that humility and even his humiliation is the prerequisite for being king, which was true of David um, and it's even more true for, Je- for Jesus. So what about the question that I posed at the beginning about how we should relate to God? How should we relate to this holy, awesome God? With familiarity or with fear? Some things in life are to be feared. You know, it was a fearful thing for the residents of Calbarry, wasn't it? Desperately trying to find some kind of protection in their homes. I I heard a lady speak on the radio about huddling together with her children in her home as the cyclone Sirosia roared around them, wreaking destruction. It's a fearful thing for many, so many in India living in cities under the grip of a pandemic that is now out of control with people dying in the streets. Some things in life are to be feared. You fear what is dangerous. You fear what is awesome. And if you truly understand the holiness of God, you will fear God. Now, if you are someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to be afraid because A sinner standing in the presence of a holy God, as we all will on his judgment day, a sinner standing there without the sacrifice of Jesus to cover and to shield them from God's wrath is in more danger than a man walking unclothed into the core of a nuclear reactor. Now, I don't say that lightly, obviously, or thoughtlessly. Uh, God is the judge of all. And given that truth of the reality of God's judgment, you need to turn to Christ, to come to him, 
so that he can clothe you with his saving righteousness. His wonderful saving righteousness. At the cross of Jesus, the wrath of God broke out. And at great cost to himself, out of love for us, his wrath broke out against his own dear son who died on a cross for us. And Christ shielded sinners by his blood to save us. We can be forgiven by accepting that sacrifice of his own dear son uh, in our place. But if you are someone who trusts in the Lord Jesus, how do you approach God? How do you relate to him? Hebrews 12 um, tells us what our relationship with God is like. It's a very helpful chapter. Because of Jesus, it's not actually a matter of pure naked fear anymore. Hebrews 12 from verse 18 says, You have not come to a mountain that, that can be touched and that is burning with fire. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. You know, that terror, uh, the kind of fear that Moses and David had, is not right for us. Why? Well, Hebrews 12 continues like this. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See what, what the writer of the Hebrews is saying? There's a real change between the Old Testament saints and New Testament Christians. We know God truly as a father who loves us and we come before him as righteous and perfect. And that's because Jesus' full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice has dealt with our sins so we are completely forgiven. You know, his blood cries out, mercy. And his blood cries out, come, come into my presence. We are not simply sinners before a holy God and so we can have great confidence as Christians to draw near uh, to God. Because of Jesus, we are not and we will not be condemned by God. We know that we are safe forever in the hands of a loving Heavenly Father. And how good it is to be convinced of that. But there is still a kind of fear. It's a different kind of fear. It's reverence and awe. See it in verse 28? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So sheer terror is no longer true for Christians and yet we are still to have reverence and awe in our relationship with God. Why? Because we realise that even though God has forgiven us, he is still awesome and holy and powerful. It's who God is. And we must never forget that the Father who loves us is also the holy, awesome God of immense power. And our response to him must be the worship spoken of here. Worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. As his chosen people invited to draw near to him, we are called to reflect his holiness. And the context of these verses in Hebrews is all about that. It's about living holy lives, living peacefully with others. 
watching our anger and our tongues, running away from bitterness and envy, holiness with regard um, to sex and to greed and in all of our attitudes. And so living as a Christian is in many ways, um, it's like doing the bridge climb up the arch of the Madagarup Bridge. That's that bridge that spans the Swan River next to the stadium, right? Is it dangerous? Is it something to be afraid of? Well, no, it's perfectly safe. It looks like it would be a wonderful, exhilarating walk to do. And you can be sure that you'll reach your destination. That's what I say on the website anyway. Um, But why is it safe? It's safe because there's a fence. Um, Without the fence, the drop below is long and fatal. If you tried to climb over the fence, you would be a fool. Never forget that God is truly awesome. Being a Christian is safe and wonderful. You can be sure of reaching the destination, but don't be an idiot and climb over the fence, will you? Flirting with anger, bitterness, envy, strife, lust, porn, love of money, it's playing around with the awesome holiness of God. And we must not be casual when it comes to sin. Uh, Instead, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray, shall we? Our, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, Help us in our daily walk with you, we pray, uh, to know your fatherly love and to entrust ourselves into your fatherly arms. And help us too, we pray, to have a proper sense of your awesome holiness, to worship you acceptably with reverence and awe as we make every effort to pursue holiness and as we set our hope fully on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Amen.